Well, good Lord's Day to you, Theresa Church family. Uh, we're gathering once again via video uh, due to this uh, ongoing health crisis. Uh, it's new to all of us, and uh, yet by God's grace, here we are uh, because of the gift of technology, being able to share in the Word together, being able to gather on the Lord's Day and sharing in worship together. And so we'll continue along in our study uh, of Mark's Gospel. This is uh, the character of Christian discipleship, part two. We started last week with part one, looking at four characteristics of the Christian disciple. And this morning, we'll, we'll continue on with that, looking at uh, the other four. And uh, by God's grace, we will see wonderful things in his word. But as we begin, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, we, we love you and we praise you. And Lord, we confess right up front uh, that this is an odd time in our lives, an odd time in the life of our church. And God, our heart cries that we could gather physically as one body uh, here in this room as we have so many times before. And Lord, as we look forward to being able to gather again sometime in the future. But God, right now, uh, we... We acknowledge together that you are sovereign over all of this. You are sovereign over this, this virus. You are sovereign over the, the cultural crisis that we find ourselves in. And Lord, we know uh, that even a virus and the shutdown of a culture and the, a worldwide pandemic, we know, oh God, that, that these things cannot thwart your will. They can't get in your way. They can't keep you from, from carrying out what you desire and so we confess that up front, and we, we pray, O oh God, that you would use that truth to steady our hearts. Lord, as we turn now to the Word, I pray that you would give us insight by the power of the Holy Spirit to see the, the wonderful truths that come forth from your Word. Help us to see what it means to walk in faithfulness. Help us to see, O oh God, what it means to be a disciple of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we, we ask all of this in your holy name and in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, you remember last week I opened with a, a story uh, from my own personal life about how I went to, to, to college and finished a biblical studies degree and thought that I was ready and then went into a graduate study degree and thought that then I was ready and then finished a third degree and, and realized I was uh, ignorant. And so you'll, you'll remember that I talked about how the Christian life is akin to that, that we, we are progressively growing more and more to be like Jesus, and that all along the way in my life, not just starting when I went to college, but all along the way in my life, the Lord has been gracious to me. He's been growing me. But over these last 10 years, the Lord has really revealed to me not only the foolishness of my thoughts, thinking that I had reached maturity or thinking that I had finished growing, not only did He reveal the foolishness of those thoughts in my life, but He's given me grace to to see those things. He's given me grace to continue growing. And, and by, his, uh, by his grace and the promises of his word, he's promised that I'll continue to grow. And the same is true for you. If you are in Christ, then, then you're not finished growing. You're not finished becoming like Jesus. And we, none of us will be until we get to heaven. But as we continue to look at these characteristics of the Christian disciple, we need to understand that these core character traits are the mark of each follower as we are being shaped and as we are being transformed by Jesus Christ. They are the character, uh, the core character traits of those who are being transformed. Notice the action there. 
something's going on, something's changing. We should understand these things as the fruits of Christ's impact, not as the spiritual disciplines that we work through in our own strength, but as the fruits of Christ's work in our life. And what I mean by that is, uh, you remember last week we talked about being in surrender to God's will. So what I don't mean is that we should go out and try, well, I need to surrender more and more and more to God's will. That'll make me a disciple. Now, it's true that we should actively surrender to God's will, but trying our best and our hardest isn't what gets us there. It's that Christ is working in us in various ways that leads us to surrender to God's will. You see, spiritual disciplines are important. Spiritual disciplines are things like studying the Word of God, reading the the Word of God regularly, thinking about it, meditating on it. Things like praying, fasting, fellowship, journaling, things that get us to God, those are spiritual disciplines. And the point I want to make is that while those are important, they are not, they're not what we're after per se. They help us to become disciples. We aren't disciples just because we read the Bible. We are disciples because Christ is at work in us, and he is at work in us through things like reading the Bible and praying and fasting and so on and so forth. Christ is progressively working in our lives to work maturity and to bring us to maturity in faith. But I want to revisit one thing I just said, that these core character traits of the disciple mean that we are being shaped. We are being transformed. That word being means an ongoing process. And so something that we need to understand is that something ought to be happening in our lives. Something ought to be changing as we are growing in Christ's likeness. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in chapters 5 and 6. He says um, to the to the Hebrew believers, the Jewish believers, he said, you, you guys ought to be on to more the more rich things of faith, the deeper things of faith, and yet you're still taking a bottle. So the point that he's saying is that there should be a growth in the Christian life that mirrors a growth in our physical lives. That when we come to faith, we're spiritual infants and spiritual newborns, but then as we grow, we become spiritual adolescents and adults and parents and grandparents. We become spiritually mature. And the Bible talks about all of these things. And so the main idea this morning is the same as last week, that the word of God gives us a clear picture and a clear description of the Christian disciple. It tells us how we are to be in the world as we live and as we walk with Jesus. Gives us a very clear picture. And so if you've got your Bibles in front of you, turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to read uh, Mark's definition of discipleship again. We read it last week, and we'll read it again now. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, we read these words. Calling Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Last week I said we talked about 
four characteristics, those being surrender to God's will, faith in God, prayer, and watching over our hearts. And this week, we're going we're gonna to finish uh, this, this, these two brief sermons. We're going to look at these last four, which are humility and service, forgiveness, what, withstanding temptation, and then confessing Christ together. And if you're tuning in with us for the first time, we're glad that you're here. Uh, this is not the normative way that I preach. Uh, I normally go t- uh, through the through, uh, book of the Bible, verse by verse, right in order. But here, we've backed out of our study of Mark, and we're asking the question, what is Mark saying about what it means to be a Christian disciple? This is a, what I'm calling a, a survey sermon. We're asking Mark this question. And so as I said just a moment ago, the fifth character trait of the disciple is humility and service. We see this over in chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. The character traits of humility and service. And while you're turning there, let me make this comment. That character is about who we are, not what we do. So as we're talking about the character of the Christian disciple, we're not necessarily talking about what a Christian disciple does, although some of that is wrapped up in it. We're talking more about who the Christian disciple is in the heart. So while a Christian disciple does acts of humility and does acts of service, this is something that primarily resides in the the heart, something that's true of the heart. So look with me at Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Mark records, and Jesus called to them and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, humility and service, humility is one of the most essential characteristics of the Christian disciple. It's, it's, a, it's an oxymoron to talk about a proud Christian or a boastful Christian, an arrogant Christian. Those, those terms contradict one another because a Christian means someone who is humble. Peter reminds us of this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, where he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you ever met someone that, that talks about how humble they are, you know how much of a contradiction that is. If they want to boast essentially about how humble they are, you know that that's contradictory. What we're talking about is, is genuine biblical humility. Mark brings this out by focusing on two, two kind of primary characteristics. One of those is humble service to others. We see this in two places specifically. In chapter 1, Jesus goes into Peter's mother-in-law's house when she has a fever and he cares for her. He he values her needs and, and is ministering to her in her time of need. But we also see it in the text that we just read in chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, he's God. He's the creator of all things. If anybody is worthy of being served, it's him. And yet he said, I came not to be served but to serve others. And he's, the highest form of his service is that he gave his life as a ransom for, for many. But a second way that Mark highlights humility is that, that, of, that, uh, that of the characteristic of teachability, that we are teachable, that we're not above being taught and instructed and corrected, that we're willing to hear 
correction. To be humble means to have a modest or low view of one's importance. Now, we need to you know, just say up front, there are important people in our world. Our president is an important person. It doesn't matter who that person is at any given time. The president of the United States, by virtue of the office, is important. Teachers are important people. There are all kinds of important people in our world. And yet, to be humble means to have a modest or low view of one's importance. If, if somebody begins to think of their own importance and value their own importance, then their humility is going to fade away. Even if they are actually important, their humility is going to fade away. And you, and you know people like that. I know people like that. And I think if we're honest, we, we either are or have been people like that. That we forget humility in the midst of importance or responsibility. And because, because God knows that that's a struggle for humanity, that we, we struggle with genuine humility, God knows that. He gave us a whole book of the Bible dealing with humility. And that's the letter, the New Testament letter to the Philippian church. Well, if you've got your Bible, flip over to Philippians chapter 2. I want you to see what Paul says. You see, in Philippi, and, and, and I'm not going to spend too much time here, but in Philippi, the Roman colony of Philippi, one of the things that that, that culture valued was honor. It was good to be honored. And so people went out of their way to make sure that they expressed or they, they put on display all the reasons they should be honored. And so when Paul writes the letter of Philippians to the, to the, to the church in Philippi, he's, he's turning this, this uh, self-honoring, this, this self-promoting attitude on its head by pointing to Jesus Christ. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, in Philippi, the, the, the common practice was to count yourself more important than others. And Paul says, well, no, 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 that's not the Christian way. That's not, that's not becoming of a Christian. A Christian counts others more important than themselves. And to make sure we understand what that means, Philippians goes on in, in chapter 2, Paul goes on to show us, well, this is what Jesus did, because although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But instead, he, he came to earth and he put on flesh and he was crucified for our sins. And so one of the things Paul's doing in, in, in Philippians is taking the truth of Jesus Christ and applying it to the church. And he's saying, it's not, not only is it unbecoming of a church to be proud and boastful, that's actually a direct contradiction of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, Christ himself is the, is the supreme example of humility. And so Mark, along with the rest of Scripture, saying we are to be a humble people. You see, Jesus' humiliation, that is, that is his crucifixion, his, his being put to death, Jesus' humiliation and his subsequent exaltation, those things provide a pattern for you and I to imitate. If we want to know how we are to go about this Christian life, we can look to our Lord Jesus and say, that's how. See, God doesn't call us to atone for the sins of the world. God calls us to imitate his son, and his son is humble. You see, this is one of the keys to genuine gospel community. If we want to ask the question, how do we actually live together in a God-honoring way? One of those ingredients is that we are a humble, Christ-like people. 
As we examine Mark's gospel, we find humility working itself out in in several forms. As I said earlier, serving others, we see that. In Mark chapter 9, the disciples are asking Jesus, uh, who is going to be most important in heaven? And Jesus has to correct them. Being humble means having a teachable spirit. We see from Jesus himself that humility involves service to God and to others. As Jesus humbled himself in service of other people, he was actually serving God by carrying out the will of God. Mark hi, Mark's highest example of humility, as I said, is Christ himself. Jesus exemplifies what these things looked like as he died a substitutionary death on the cross. He died in our place. That is humility and service coming together. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul talks about how at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So even while we were still sinners, Paul says, even while we were still actively rejecting Christ, he died in humility and service for us. And so we need to ask these questions. To what extent am I humbly serving God? Now that doesn't mean am I doing things in the name of God? Am I doing things for God? Because Jesus give those, gives us those, those, those terrifying words in Matthew 7 that on the last day, the judgment day, there will be many who say to me, Jesus says, uh, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And he, say, and he will say to them, depart from me for I never knew you you workers of lawlessness. And so we need to be careful here. There are plenty of people inside and outside the church that think they are working for God, that think they are serving God and yet never ask of the Bible, what does it mean to serve God? And so we need to ask, to what extent am I humbly serving God? How am I humbly serving other people? That right now with this crisis going on is a, is, a, is, a, is a beautiful time for the church to step up and serve others, to serve members of our own body, to serve the people here right here in our, in our, in our, in our neighborhoods. And we're taking steps to do that. And you'll be hearing more about that as, as the days come. But we need to ask personally, how am I humbly serving others? That's what Jesus did. He took his robe off and took the position of a servant and washed his disciples' feet. He went to the cross for you and I's sake. But lastly, we need to ask this question. This is a discipleship question. How am I teaching others to serve in humility? Not only in what ways am I serving God and, and, and in what ways am I serving others, but how am I teaching others to serve God, to be humble? Well, the sixth thing, the sixth characteristic we see of the Christian disciple from Mark's gospel is that of forgiveness, that, that the Christian disciple is a person who forgives. And Mark brings this out in a number of ways. And if you've got your Bible, flip over to chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus has given a lesson from the fig tree. Verse 25, he says, and, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now I want you to pay attention to what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say forgive if you have anything against anyone as long as it's not. See, the Bible doesn't provide us any room here to withhold forgiveness for any reason. 
The Christian is a person who forgives. Biblical forgiveness is defined this way. To send sin forth or to send sin away, to get rid of it, to completely cancel the debt of sin. It means the remission of the punishment that is due for sin, followed by the complete removal of the offense. You see, this is where we've really got to buckle down and let the Bible speak right into our hearts and our minds. Because real forgiveness is costly. Real forgiveness is often undeserved. Real forgiveness is hard work. Because biblical forgiveness means seeing that the sin has been sent away. The sin has been dealt with. If I see all that Christ has done for me and my sin, that he's washed it away, that he's dealt with my sin, then I am free to forgive others. You see, that second part of the definition, a remission of the punishment due, followed by the complete removal of the offense, that's what frees us to actually live our lives together. If Christ hadn't gone to the cross, we would have no ability to forgive one another. We'd have, no, we'd have no understanding of what true, genuine forgiveness looks like. This is why the Lord's Supper is so adamant that when we come to the communion table as a body of Christ, that we forgive before we get there. Because you see, the, the heart of the communion table is unity. The heart of the, of the communion table means that, that I have freely and, and joyfully forgiven anyone who has sinned against me. That's why it tells us in Matthew 5, Jesus says, uh, before you ever bring your offering to the, to the altar, if there's something between you and a brother, go and, and deal with that so that your offering is not tainted. If we, if we come to the communion table inappropriately, that means if we come to the communion table harboring bitterness towards another brother or sister in Christ, if we come to the communion table harboring unforgiveness, what we are saying is we don't believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough. You see, the communion table reminds us that Christ's blood was shed, that his body was broken for us, for our sins. And that, that it, it is, in fact, enough to help us forgive. It is, in fact, all that we need to participate in genuine gospel forgiveness. And so when we withhold forgiveness for any reason, we are saying Christ's death was not enough for you. A Christian disciple is one who has been saved and is learning Christ. You remember that last week we said a disciple means someone who is a learner. And so it's one who's been saved from their sin and one who is in the process of learning Jesus Christ. And so a disciple is one who is learning Christ. That means that he or she has received the forgiving atonement for their sin in Christ. And the fruit or the evidence of truly understanding this gift is the extending of forgiveness to others however they've wronged you. Let me say that again. The way that we know that we understand what Christ has done for us is that we in turn forgive others what they have done against us. You see, what others do to us does not compare in any way to our offense against God. What other people can do to us compares in no way to how we sin against God. Jesus talks about this with the parable of the unforgiving servant. 
The man owes his master an astronomical amount of money that he couldn't possibly pay him back, and yet the master forgives him, cancels the debt totally, absorbs the liability, and says, go in peace. But the man goes out and finds a guy who owes him $10 and throws him in jail over it. And the master finds out and comes to this unforgiving servant. He says, how is it that I've forgiven you this this astronomical amount of money that you had no way of repaying, but you, out of the evil wickedness of your heart, won't forgive this person who owes you a minuscule amount of money? What others do to us does not compare in any way to what we have, how we have offended a holy God. You see, for the Christian, we must understand that God does not forgive us because we repent. Let me get that straight. God is not waiting to forgive all who come to him and repent. We uh, repent as a fruit of God's forgiveness. It is God's mercy in our lives. It's God's forgiveness in our lives that brings us to the point of repentance. We saw this in our study of Deuteronomy from last week, that grace comes before obedience. You see, repentance of our sin is is an act of obedience christ calls us to do that he says repent of your sins but before i can ever truly repent god's grace has to be at work in my life god's forgiveness has to be at work in my life biblically jesus has the power and the authority to forgive our sins because he himself has absorbed the liability of our sin meaning this He deals with our sins himself. He deals with our sins at his own expense. He assumes and pays the debt of our sins himself. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Meaning this. That, that God the Father took my sin and gave it to Christ, so much so that Christ becomes guilty of my sin and goes to the cross. And in doing so, takes Christ's righteousness and credits it to me so much so that I am worthy of Christ's righteousness because of him. Now, I can't earn that in any way. It's all God from front to back, from start to finish. But I I quote 2 Corinthians to make the point that Christ deals with our sin totally. He absorbs the cost of our sin, which is death, goes to the cross and dies the death that we deserve to die, and in so doing, forgives. Which is why John writes the words in 1 John 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And we can also say we forgive because he has first forgiven us. You see, the Christian who forgives as Christ forgives begins with their own heart. If I never deal with the sin that's in my own heart, I'll never be able to forgive you the sin that you've committed against me. The Christian who forgives as Christ forgives has followed the path of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. They first emptied themselves of everything that's worldly, everything that's sinful. Then they've moved into the mourning process over their own sin. You see, as we begin to really see our sin and really understand our sin, we begin to be broken over the fact that we have, in fact, sinned. And through brokenness over our sins, we become peacemakers. 
we begin to apply the peace and the healing of the gospel. Even when it's people wronging us, we begin to apply the healing peace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means we forgive. So when you ask these questions, to what extent, to what extent do I understand my forgiveness in Jesus Christ? That means do I understand forgiveness enough so that I'm giving it to other people? If I'm not forgiving others, then perhaps I don't understand my own forgiveness. Let me ask the question, do I relate forgivingly to others? Is that, is that the, the bedrock of our foundation, that I know you're a sinner, you know I'm a sinner, and I know that we both know that we need the forgiveness that Christ offers? Is that how we relate to other people? Or perhaps do you find that you have a lot of relational strife in your life? You might be thinking about the relationships that kind of make up your, your core friendship group or family group, and maybe there's a lot of tension there. Maybe there's a lot of unforgiveness there, and that may be a, a, a point of conviction from the Lord that you need to revisit this understanding that a Christian is one who forgives. And then the third question, how am I teaching others to understand and live out Christ's forgiveness? Because you see, biblical forgiveness is a necessary ingredient for a, healthy, for a healthy Christian life and a healthy Christian church. An unforgiving church, which that's an unfortunate reality in our world, but an unforgiving church is, an, is a contradiction of terms as well. Because a church is meant to be, a church by definition is made up of forgiven saints who forgive. You see, there's a difference between understanding and living out. There's a lot of people who understand the concept of forgiveness. But there's a lesser amount of people who actually live out forgiveness. There's a lot of people who understand what Jesus did for them. There's a lot of under, people who understand at least mentally what forgiveness means that never fail, I mean that that, that never make the the connection to actually begin being a forgiving person. They fail to bring the two together. They fail to bring together the understanding of what Christ has done and the act of forgiving others. There's a difference between understanding and living out. Well, the seventh characteristic of the Christian disciple is that the disciple withstands temptation, that they stand up, that they, that they, they push back against temptation. We see this over in chapter 14, verse 38 chapter 14 we find jesus and his disciples praying in gethsemane just before the cross and jesus says in chapter 14 verse 38 watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation the spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak within mark's gospel withstanding temptation focuses on that which comes from the outside the, the physical temptation and persecution that comes. It also means being watchful for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I'll show you that in just a few moments. You'll recall last week that we talked about guarding our hearts, that one of the, the core characteristics of the Christian disciples is that we guard our hearts against sin and against temptation. And this one's connected to that, but the focus more is on outward things. If I'm guarding my heart against sin, that means I'm paying attention to where I'm tempted inwardly. But withstanding temptation means that I am paying attention to what's coming at me outwardly. In 1438, Jesus is exhorting the disciples to pray in order to combat the temptation to sleep. They're tired. They're not paying attention. And Jesus is saying, pray that you might withstand this temptation. The idea that we must be watchful and prayerful 
That's the idea because we may be enticed by various situations to deny our dependence upon Jesus Christ. And that's really the core of this characteristic, that there will be things in this life that tempt us to deny our dependence upon Christ. We may be persecuted and tempted to deny his name. We see this with Peter just a few verses after this in chapter 14, verse 68. Peter says earlier, he says, Lord, I'll die for you. And yet when facing the threat of persecution three times, Peter says, I don't, I don't know him. I'm not with him. We uh, may be tempted to, when we face sickness and suffering, we may be tempted to lose faith. We may be tempted to believe God may not heal us. We may be faced with financial loss. We may face relational loss. There are a lot of things in this life that will tempt us to deny trusting Christ. It will tempt us to deny our dependence on Christ. It will tempt us by saying, is Jesus enough? You see, this is how it all started back in Genesis chapter 3 when Satan said to Eve, did God really say? Because temptations so often come and they get in our ear and they say, is Christ really enough? Take, for instance, the very situation we find ourselves in right now because of the coronavirus. We see the, the threat of sickness, the threat of joblessness for so many. We see people facing financial loss and struggle. We, we're all facing the loss of freedoms and the, 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 the freedom to enjoy our regular lifestyles. We're seeing the loss of the freedom to gather together. The very reason that I'm coming to you via a video is because we can't freely gather together right now. We're, we're facing the loss of the, our peace of mind. We're facing a reality check about how fragile our health is. We're facing a reality check about how fragile our health care system is. About really how limited it is. We are, no doubt, being tempted to worry and doubt, tempted to lack trust in God. We're being tempted to trust in ourselves. We're being, to, we're being tempted to trust in our own provision. We're being tempted uh, to, to trust in the protection of our homes. We're being tempted to worry about money. We're being tempted to worry about tomorrow. And at the heart of these temptations is the lie that Christ isn't enough. Recall the first characteristic from last week, which is surrender to God's will. Uh, the, the Christian disciple is surrendered in every way to God's will. We know that God is sovereign over all. We know that he's sovereign over this virus. And the key to withstanding these temptations is to remember who God is and to trust him that his will is being done. You know, I saw a video clip that's been going around on social media of an old Billy Graham sermon. And I think it was a sermon from Habakkuk and Billy Graham made the point. If God told us all he was doing in the world today, we wouldn't believe him. If God set us down and said, hey, here's how I'm using the coronavirus for my glory, we would say, are you sure? Another quote that comes to mind is uh, from a pastor that I know who said, God is doing 10,000 things a day in your life, and you might be aware of three. 
If God were to tell us all he was doing in the world, we would have a hard time comprehending and understanding, which is why in his grace, all he calls us to do is trust him. And so when we are faced with temptation, however it may present itself, and you know and I know it will present itself. When we are faced with temptation, our heart cries to say, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. So we need to ask these questions. To what extent am I withstanding temptation and being watchful? If you're like me, that needs to be done on a very regular basis right now. God, how am I being tempted today? Am I being tempted to trust in the promise that, hey, maybe this is getting better? Or am I, am I having a fear that, hey, maybe this whole crisis thing is getting worse and is going to get worse? And then what? We need to ask the question, how am I being watchful? How am I being tempted? How am I guarding myself and others against temptation? Which means I'm pointing myself and other people to Christ. How am I daily answering my temptations with the, with the response, Christ is enough? Well, lastly, the, the eighth characteristic that I want to bring out is that the Christian disciple confesses Christ. That the Christian disciple confesses Jesus Christ. Flip over to chapter 5 of Mark's gospel and we'll look at verse 20. If you recall, Jesus is in a Gentile region and he's about to heal or he just healed a man with many demons and the man wants to go with Jesus and Jesus says no go home to your friends go home to your family tell them all that the Lord has done for you and in chapter 5 verse 20 Mark says he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled You see, confessing Christ means that we are proclaiming, we are telling, that we are heralding all that Jesus is, all who Jesus is, all he has done for us, all that he can do for the world. You see, if we are to understand the gospel fully, what we begin to see is that our relationship with Christ is the single most important aspect of our lives. There's nothing more important than being in relationship with Jesus. And if I've been saved through the gospel, that is the foundational, most essential, most important truth that I can say about myself, that 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 becomes the foundational piece of my life. Well, for Mark, confessing Christ has both a positive and a negative side. Positively, as we see here in chapter 5, we are to confess, we are to tell the world all that Christ has done for us. This, is an, this, this right now, this time of crisis, is a positive time for you to tell your friends, your family, your neighbors, all that Christ has done for you. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a fruitful time for us to say together, Christ is in fact enough. But Mark also talks about this negative side of confessing which means that we are not to deny Christ to the world. Talks about this over in chapter 8, verse 38. This is right after the text I began with. Verse 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So we are to confess Christ to the world, and we are not to deny Christ to the world. You see, a natural consequence of knowing God and coming under his forgiveness is that we proclaim him to the world. Confessing Christ, that means means that we confess and reflect him in our thoughts, 
in our feelings, in our relationships, and how we handle money. It means that we confess Christ in how we handle moral challenges, in how we enter into and conduct ourselves in the midst of arguments. Confessing Christ has a distinct impact on how we resolve conflict. To confess Christ means that he is embedded in the totality of our lives. That means there's not one part of our lives where Christ isn't present. You see, we tend to think about confessing Christ only in a verbal uh, form. That if I'm telling someone verbally of all that Jesus has done, then I am, that I am being obedient to this confession. But that's not all. That's, that's really only a very small part of what I think Mark is getting at when he says that the Christian disciple confesses Christ. Now, don't get me wrong confessing Christ to the world, proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel, telling people of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus, that's essential. Paul asked that question in Romans 10. He says, well, how will they hear if no one's telling them? So we have to tell. But Mark gives us this much more far, this broad sweeping picture of what it means to confess Christ. It includes the verbal uh, testimony of the Christian, but it also means what I think, how I feel, how I go about my relationships, how I handle my money, how I deal with temptation. All of that is an aspect of me confessing Christ. You see, some will, will be more skilled at this than others some will be further along the maturity process than others but mark is clear all who have been saved will proclaim christ and not deny him all who have been saved will confess christ to the world with what they say and how they live and they won't deny him You see, Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He says that right up front in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Such is also our task publicly in the world. How do we go about our lives? We go about our lives in any way that proclaims the gospel of the glory of God. But we also do it privately to one another. Confessing Christ is the key ingredient to healthy Christian relationships. How do you and I live together in God-honoring ways? By remembering that what Christ is doing in you, he's doing in me. That's how we come together and live together in a God-honoring way. So we need to ask these questions. To what extent am I confessing Christ? To what extent am I confessing Christ in the presence of God? When you come before God in prayer, do you come before him acknowledging that the only reason you can pray and be heard is because of Jesus Christ? To what extent am I confessing Christ in the presence of others? When we come together, uh, and there is coming a day when we'll be able to come together again, but when we come together, how often does Jesus come up in our conversations? When we find ourselves in conflict with one another, how quickly are we coming to the word of God together? When I'm with my lost friends or family members or coworkers, how often am I confessing Christ in the hope that is only in him? And thirdly, how am I teaching others to confess Christ? How are we encouraging one another and equipping one another to confess Christ with our mouths, verbally to the world, but also with our lives? How am I teaching people to confess Christ in the midst of fear? How are we teaching each other to confess Christ in the midst of struggle, of worry, of anxiety? How are we teaching, to confess, teaching each other to confess Christ when we're doing well, when we're succeeding, when we're on a mountaintop? 
We confess Christ with the full, uh, full totality of our lives. Well, these eight characteristics give us insight into the holistic life of the Christian disciple. These, these eight things are not exhaustive. These are not the only eight things we can say about the character of the Christian, but they are eight core characteristics of the Christian disciple. You see, the, the, the presence of God in our lives leads us to be people becoming whole again. You remember I used that last week, that through the gospel, we are people becoming whole again. Sin breaks us. It breaks us down. It ruins our humanity. It leads us to want things and to give ourselves to things that aren't worth giving ourselves to, that actually harm us. And yet in Christ, we are being restored. We are being made more like him. And so what these eight characteristics help us to see is that the abiding presence of God in our lives leads us to be people becoming whole again. We can say this, for his glory. You see, as we walk with Christ, we walk the life of faith. But that's not all. In Psalm 16, verse 10 and 11, We read these words. God has made known to us the path of life. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy, pleasure forevermore. Let's pray. God, it has been good to be under the authority of your word. It's been good to consider what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to be in full surrender to your will, knowing that there's nothing in this world that can mess up your will. There's nothing that can get in its way. And Lord, we want to, with, with joy, surrender to your will. Lord, we want to be people who pray. We want to be people who, who, who are guarding our hearts. God, we want to be people who are withstanding temptation. We want to be people who are saying, yes, Christ is enough. We want to be people of gospel humility. We want to be serving others as Christ has served us. Lord, we want to be people who confess Christ with every aspect of our lives. Lord, help us, give us the grace to look inside of ourselves and ask, are these things true of me? We can never do that enough. We'll never outgrow the need to do that. Lord, we do pray that as we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis, a health crisis, an economic crisis, we cast ourselves at your feet, knowing that you are in control, knowing that nothing is happening outside of your control. Lord, we we remind ourselves that you are steady, that you are the creator, that you are the sustainer. Lord, our lives are are not dependent on this virus or on our culture or on our wealth. Our lives are dependent upon you. So Lord, as we've considered this word last week and this week, we pray that you would use our time in your word, that you would use these truths to steady our hearts, to keep our eyes pointed on you, to keep our minds set upon the things above where Christ is. And God, we pray Together, Colossians 3.16, that the word of Christ would dwell richly within us, leading us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God, we pray all of this in your great name and with hearts full of faith. Amen.